You're listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Church in Huntsville, Ontario. Harvest Church is a community that exists to love God, love people, and make disciples of Jesus Christ for the glory of God. For more information about our church, visit us online at myharvestchurch.ca. Go ahead and grab your Bibles and go to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 6 is where we're going to be this morning. Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to be verses 5 to 9. I think there's a temptation often when we think about our faith that as Christ followers, we can, we can compartmentalize our faith. Where we have this uh, ability of saying, okay, here's the box where, 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 where Jesus fits in. And, it, and Jesus, you're going to fit in this box where I, where I go to church, where I, I do church things, I, I hang with my Christian friends. Like that's the box that, that, that fits over here. And then there's a whole other box over here that, well, this is the rest of my life. Like, this is where I do stuff, that that school goes in here, work goes in here. And the the text this morning really blows that whole idea up. Because when Jesus enters our lives, listen, everything changes. He's he's not just Lord of of just this one little small part of our life, but he's Lord of everything. And when you experience this deep gospel change of, of Jesus in your life, you're different, listen, wherever you are. My hope for us as a church, I've been praying this a lot lately. My hope is this, um, Lord, would you just make us Jesus people? I mean this, that wherever we go, we, we reflect Jesus. That in, in our marriages, in our, in our parenting, in our schools, in our workplaces, when we go to a restaurant, when we go shopping, what we're, when, whatever we're doing, that, that we, would, we would be Jesus people wherever we go. And, and we, we've been unpacking over the last few weeks this one thought of, of what does it look like for Jesus to work in our closest relationships? And the, and the word Paul uses, starting in, in Ephesians 5, 21, where he says, submit to each other. He uses this word, submit, that, that we would humbly be looking to each other's needs before our own, that we would be looking for ways, how do I serve you like I would serve Jesus and like Jesus served me? talked about marriage, we've talked about parenting, and here we come to this last part now in in verses 5 to 9 of Ephesians 6 where we're talking about uh, this kind of last area of our life where where we work, or if you're a student, school. If you have your Bibles open, let's let's read the verses together in Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 5, it says this, it says, slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he's slave or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. As you read through this text, um, that that first word actually can be a bit of a problematic word. Did anybody else, like you read that, you're like, is he going to just skip past that? It says, slaves obey your earthly masters. Now, now if you have the ESV with the little study notes, there'll be a little number there. You see that little number? And you go down to the bottom, it says this, this probably should be translated as bond servants. So it's, it's a, different, a different way of looking at, okay, what does it mean by slave? So a bond servant, very different than what we would think of when we think slavery. So, so here's the thing. I, I don't want to move past this. I think it'd be good for us to camp here a little bit. 
Because this whole idea of somebody owning somebody else, it kind of makes us sit up and take notice. And, and we know that slavery has been a horrific practice in, in, in even just our recent history. The, the stain it is on countries who participated in the Atlantic slave trade where Africans kidnapped and sold into slavery. So we come to a passage like this. I think we do need to pause a little bit. I mean, what is Paul saying? And, and when you're reading scripture, the, the key is this. You need to go, hey, what is, what is the writer saying to the original audience before I just take this and apply it to me? Because a lot of times, and I don't think it's wrong, we're going to do it this morning, where, where if you've heard this preach before, they'll just kind of skip past and go, hey, this is a lot like you at your work. And you're like, what, is it? Somebody like, my boss is horrible, but are you really a slave at your work, Right? But we can read it with modern eyes, and, and, and we need to understand what, what's really happening. What is the, the hear of this hearing first, the, the people Paul's writing to in that first century Roman culture? Because in first century Roman culture, slavery was a little bit like what we think of slavery, but also different in some ways. Let, let me give some of the, the ways it's different so we can start to unpack this. Um, um, the, the African slave trade was race-based in Rome. It had nothing to do with race. Romans had Roman slaves, and they, they, were, they were integrated into, into almost every level of society, some holding influential positions. Uh, another difference would be that in the African slave trade, it was kidnapping, which is condemned in Scripture. In Deuteronomy 21, 16, Deut um, sorry, Exodus 21, 16, Deuteronomy 24, 7, where God's Word says you can't do that. You can't, in Scripture, it's called man-stealing. You can't come and just take somebody. Now, Paul used a word here that, that scholars would translate as bond servant, and bond servant's a little different than that, and bond servant, it really, a lot of times, would come about because of bankruptcy. So here's what it is. Picture yourself, you're a shop owner in first century Rome, and the economy crashes, or the stuff you're selling, it just, it's not selling really well, and then what do you do? You're, you're, you, <clears throat> your business goes under, you lose everything, you've got this huge debt hanging over your neck. Listen, there, there's no welfare at the time. There's, there's no uh, bank insurance for your business. There's no loans that you could have gotten. And so you're left with a few options. One is this. Will family and friends jump in and help you out? Or, or you find a wealthy person who will buy you as a bond servant. You liquidate everything. You basically, you sell yourself into this person's care. And, and, and you say, I I'm going to pay you back. And when I pay you back, I'm then set free which happened all the time. Bond servants would pay for their freedom. We also saw this in first century where if somebody stole something, instead of going to prison, oftentimes they'd say, no, no, you're not going to prison. You're going to work this off. Seems like a pretty good system, right? In some ways, it was, it was a bit of a social net. But, but even as a social net, listen, again, I don't want to sneak past it because there still was abuse. People still were owned. And so while this idea of bond servant would be closely related, we can think of it, okay, this would relate to us today in our place of work or in school. But what about the sinful parts of this? I mean, Paul does call slavery a sin in 1 Timothy 1.10. He, he talks about buying and selling slaves is, is a sin. It's an abomination to the Lord. And, and guys like William Wilberforce or, or John Newton, hugely influenced by God's word. That's why they fought against the Atlantic slave trade. So, so if that's the case, why wouldn't Paul start this off? Why would he say what he says instead of just saying, hey, bond servants escape, slave owners repent, 
It's not like Paul was nervous about going against authorities. It's like, well, Paul was going to be careful because he didn't want to do something with the world. I mean, Paul's writing this letter to the Ephesian church from prison because he didn't care about the authority. He said, well, as he preached the gospel, right? So you, you can't accuse Paul of not being a bold communicator of the gospel. In fact, what I think is going on here shows us the amazing confidence Paul had in the gospel. The power of the gospel to redeem and to change. Let, let me tell you what I mean by that. They're in first century Rome, right? They're this beginning movement of, of a handful of these small communities gathering in, in people's homes this, this, the, as the church is beginning to grow. So you can imagine where they are in Rome and, and how unpowerful it would have been for these tiny little house churches to get their signs down with slavery. We're going to go to Caesar's palace. We're going to have our signs. And like that, that wouldn't go very far at all, right? But instead, what do they do? I think what we see here, and it, 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 again, I love that you can apply this to this culture here and the, where they were at because, man, it makes it so much more powerful when you then say, what's this look like in my workplace? Because what you have happening here is the very power that undoes the foundation of slavery itself. It disrupts the culture for the good. Listen, they, there were countless of slave rebellions that the Romans put out in a flash, like instantly, done, stopped. Paul's not leading that kind of cultural revolution. And in fact, I think he's going so much deeper. I would say this way, to, to, to revolt against culture at times, it's like throwing a piece of paper on top of a pile of wood, lighting that paper on top, hoping that gets your campfire going. It burns fast and hot, but not very long. It just burns out. And what Paul is calling us to here in these verses is, is putting this kindling under the firewood. And, and what looks like only a little spark will revolutionize an entire culture. Rome turned upside down with the gospel ethic he's calling us to. But the truth that says this, that I, I serve Jesus, he's my king. That, that bond servants and Masters alike, all called to live out from a totally different identity, a, a whole culture changed by what Paul's unpacking here. Where he's saying to the bond servant, he's saying, hey, you're actually serving Jesus. You're not owned by a master, you're owned by Jesus, and he calls you his beloved, he calls you his child. He says to the, to the Christian master here, he says, you're actually a slave of the Messiah, King Jesus, so you're not all that and a bag of chips, like, like don't think you've got it all together. And, and, and the last time that I checked, the one Jesus who owns us, owns us by giving up his life for us forgiving us, promising us his presence so we become a whole new people. And you see the same gospel. Don't worry, we're gonna get to the text here. It's only a two-hour long sermon. All right. You see the same gospel. It's lived out when Paul writes a letter to Philemon. If you ever read that book in the Bible? If you have to like, if like I wanna get through Bible reading, that's a good one to start with because I think it's like half a page long. It's just this short little letter written to this person Philemon and he's, he's appealing to this guy. This, he's a Christian slave owner named Philemon. And Philemon has a runaway slave who stole from him and took off a guy named Onesimus. And Onesimus just happens to run into Paul. Paul begins to explain the gospel to Onesimus. Onesimus repents, gives his life to Christ. Now he's a Christ follower. So Paul sends this letter to Philemon 
who had every legal right to send out Dog the bounty hunter after Onesimus and bring him back, all right? He had every right to have Onesimus killed for what he did. Paul writes this letter to Philemon. He's like, hey, Philemon, remember this. Remember, you're a Christ follower. In fact, I shared the gospel with you. And, and you went from death to life. You went from being alienated from God to being a, a child of God. And he's like, I can't, I can't make you change your mind about Onesimus. The, the dude stole from you. And so Paul's saying, I'm not going to tell you what to do, but I am going to urge you out of love to do the thing that any Christ follower should do. As a man who's been given new life in Christ, Paul's saying, Philemon, out of that love, would you take back Onesimus? And he says this, he says, not as a slave, but take him back as a brother in Christ. And he ends off his letter to Philemon by saying, hey, I, I know you're going to do the right thing. And by the way, I, in about a month, I'm going to be there. <laughs> kind of the, I want to check out to see how you actually receive back. And, that's and, and Philemon, it's just a, a powerful part of Scripture, like these verses here in Ephesians, where, where it's, it's lighting a fire of the gospel that completely lights up our culture. In the gospel, slavery totally undone. And so we're going to make a shift, and we're going to talk about how does this apply in, 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 as a student in your school as an employee in your workplace, as a boss in, in the business that you have. But, but don't miss the powerful application in the context of those first hearing this because it's huge that when you apply this same gospel to your workplace or to your school, how powerful that is. That this kind of gospel had, had a life to it that, that truly ended slavery in the first century. It was the foundation for William Wilberforce to, to end the Atlantic slave trade. It was the same spark that, that lit Martin Luther King Jr. in the civil rights movement. And so, so Paul here is saying, this is how you navigate relationships. This is how the gospel changes everything. It changes your marriage. It changes your family. It, it changes, listen, it changes the very culture we live in. When every single relationship runs through the story of the gospel. Right? The gospel that says this, that your sin, my sin, separates us from God. But Jesus, God the Son, comes and lives the perfect life that we would need to live to be in relationship with the Holy God. Jesus lives that life for us and then, and then amazingly dies in our place, taking on the penalty for our sin. The wages of sin is death. And Jesus, I'll take that for you rises again, conquers sin and death. And when you put your whole hope, your trust in Jesus, in that good news, you're made new. And you go from death to life. You go from being an enemy of God to being called his child. Adopted, given the full inheritance. And so every relationship, every, every, every relationship runs through that reality. Your whole life becomes about telling this gospel story in every one of those relationships. So if, you, if you're a spouse, it, it's in your marriage. If, if you're a kid, it's how you respond to your parents. If you're a parent, it's how you treat your kids. And what we're going to talk about here this morning, it's how you do work and school as an employee or a boss or a teacher. And the question you need to ask as you go out into your week is this, what does it mean for me in this relationship to tell the story of Jesus? What does it look like for me to show the love and the grace to that person who may not deserve it. 
What does it look like for me to live righteously, not resorting to treating people the way I think I would like to treat them? What what does it look like to live out all our relationships the way Jesus does things? Because this whole section of Scripture from verse 21 of chapter 5 till verse 9 of chapter 6 has the same theme running through it, and that is this. Are you submitting? First submitting to the Lord. And that submission then spills out to others. We submit to the Lord and it changes everything. I mean, look at the verses we're reading this morning and see how often it comes back to, are you submitted to the Lord? Verse 5 says, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Submitted to Christ. Goes on in verse 6, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as what? As servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. You're doing it as to the Lord, not to men, it says in verse 7. In verse 9, it says, because he who is, who is your master and their master is the one who is in heaven. So everything, the whole point is this. You've been bought and adopted and redeemed. You're not your own. You're now Christ, and that changes everything. In fact, there's a, a pastor who used to serve here, Lee Lewis. He would describe it this way. I thought it was really cool. He, he would say submission is, is actually like an umbrella. And he would draw it on a whiteboard, but I thought this is way cooler, all right? So it is. It's way cooler. Tell me I look way cooler, all right? <laughs> so so it's, it's like this umbrella. So, so when you submit to the Lord, what you're saying is, Lord, I'm coming under your protection. I'm coming under your authority. And under the Lord's authority is the safest place to be. As things are falling all around you, this is the safest place to be. When you step out from his authority, the Bible calls that rebellion. You're saying, I want to do things my own way. I don't care what you say. I don't care what you've called me to. I'm going to do things my way. And we've been talking over a couple of weeks here as we're unpacking the scripture, that this whole idea of God sets boundaries for us. And in those boundaries, there is freedom and protection. Under him, submitted to under his word, submitted under what he calls us to, there is this protection and freedom in that. So when you think of what what this passage is calling us to, and you think of what submission is, this idea of submitting unto the Lord, you're saying, okay, this is me saying, God, I am going to put others' knees ahead of my own. I'm going to love people. Instead of, I'm going to be self-righteous and prideful. I'm going to wait on the Lord. I'm going to trust him as he calls me to to follow him. I'm going to hold on to his promises. I'm going to take matters in my own hands because I don't trust the Lord can do this. I'm going to forgive people just as Christ forgave me. I'm going to hold on to bitterness and unforgiveness. I'm going to live within the boundaries God calls you. And he puts boundaries on a lot of the ways we're called to do life. I'm going to follow him as opposed to, I'm going to follow what culture says or my own sinful heart desires. There is a safety and a security as we come under God's protection. It's what transformed the first century with a tiny group of house churches. So in this text here, how how does it apply to my work? How does it apply if I'm a student to my school? Here here are two points, and they're super quick. For workers and for those who have workers. If you're somebody who's working, work like you work for Jesus. That's what we're called to. Work like you're actually working for Jesus. Where do I get that from? Well, verses 5 to 7. As an employee or as, as a student, when school starts up again, sorry, it's coming. It's only a month left. I'm so sorry. 
You work as an employee as, as though you say, no, Jesus is actually my boss. You go to school as saying, no, 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 Jesus is actually the, the one who's over me in school here. And, and, and you might be like, yeah, okay, I get that, but, but my boss is nothing like Jesus. They are more like Satan. And I don't know like how I'm careful because your boss might be here this morning. <laughs> no, the text doesn't say because they are Jesus. It's saying this. It's because you actually don't work for them. Ultimately, you're doing your work for the Lord. Look at verse 5 says, Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Now, Christ isn't Jesus' last name. We know that, right? Christ is a title given to Jesus. It means Messiah, the anointed one, the king. So you're serving Jesus, the king. So that means if you're in Christ, the way you work, listen, if you're in Christ, the way you work should look different than what the world does. First is this, your work is not your identity. Right? So some people, they worship their work. My, their, their work is what they put out in front of them. This is who I am. This is my identity. As Christians, we don't worship our work because our work doesn't define us. Jesus defines us. But, but our work can be an opportunity for us to worship Jesus. We want to do a good job. If we're under authority or the one with authority, we want to reflect our love for Jesus. Why? Because because I love how it says in Ephesians 2, it says that we've been saved by grace, so that's covered. It's by grace you've been saved, but you've been saved by grace for good works that he prepared for you. He prepared for us in advance to do. So, So that would mean this, the job you have is not a fluke. God has you there for a purpose. That's like work he's prepared for you. That, that if you serve in a restaurant, that's the good works he prepared in advance for you to do. If, if you're a stay-at-home mom, that's the work he's prepared in advance for you to do. If you're a carpenter, if you leave the house with, with a tool belt, a, a box lunch, and in your pickup truck, I mean, you're just like Jesus because he, he didn't have the pickup truck, but he was a, a carpenter too, right? Like, like that's the work he's called you to. He's prepared for you. If you're a boss, if, if you're a student, if you're a, a life group leader, if you serve on, here at Harvest on Sunday mornings, if, if you're a kid at home and you have chores to do, those are the good works God's prepared in advance for you to do. And for some of you, there's no paycheck attached to those good works, right? And you get that. Like moms, you don't get double time because your kid puked after 5 p.m., right? <laughs> I punched out already. What's this, <laughs> right? 4 a.m., you're crying. That's triple time. Triple times zero is, oh, no, right? So, if, like, like, listen, if you're a mom, if you're doing chores at home, if you're a student, if you volunteer, that's your work, right? And you're worshiping Jesus, you do those things as well. But how do we do it? How do we work for Jesus? A few things out of this text. First, it says, slaves, obey. So how do we work for Jesus? We work by obeying, and that's not a word we like to hear, but it's there, all right? If, if you're under authority, you obey that authority. We don't like that word obey because, because well, um, we can be selfish or self-righteous or proud or stubborn or lazy or hard-hearted, all right? Not, not you, not me, but that person you're thinking about who needs to hear this, right? They are, right? <laughs> no, it says here to obey. Fulfill your job description. Because imagine a world, imagine a world where, where children did not obey their parents, where where. where Students didn't give any respect to their teachers, where where employees didn't follow the direction of their employers, where citizens didn't honor their governments. Not super hard to imagine, is it? Kind of like, that seems like our world today, right? And it's not working, is it? 
We obey. It says here, obey with what? With fear and trembling. So not just obey, but we, we not just serve at work, but you serve with this, this respect that you have. You show respect to the person in authority. And not by way of eye service, it says, as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord, not to men. So it's saying this, you serve, you serve with respect, and you serve with a sincere heart. Not just when the boss comes by, quickly shut down the thing you shouldn't have been doing and do the thing he wanted you to do. No, no, no. No, with a heart that's sincere. I mean, if you're an employer here or a teacher or a boss of some sort, true or false, you can tell when somebody has their heart in the job or not, right? You can. You can tell when someone's heart's in it, right? You can tell when someone's just putting in the time because you're always having to encourage them, always having to motivate them, always having to check up on them. But if your heart's in it, you're self-motivated. But here's the thing. But what if I hate my job? What if I don't have motivation for it? Well, maybe if, if, it's, if God's placed you there, because we know he doesn't, doesn't just make a mistake, he's got you in that job, maybe God's doing a deeper work in your heart than it has to do with the work at all. Maybe he's trying to grow in you a different heart attitude. I mean, Paul's talking to bond servants. I can't imagine it's always a really good work day for a bond servant. But when you have this attitude of, I'm ultimately working for Jesus, you work differently. You work with a sincere heart, with goodwill towards your employer or towards your teacher. So if you're in Christ, because of who is in you, Christ in you, the way you work should be different than the rest of the world. You don't cut corners. You're not a slacker. You're not a brown noser. You don't just do good things when people are watching and the greatest witness, listen, the greatest witness you can have at work is not that you pray at lunch, it's that you have deep integrity in your job. The worst is if you talk about Jesus a lot and then you're your boss's biggest headache and you're the person nobody wants to work with. Listen, here's the thing, I believe that what this passage is saying is this, how we turn our world upside down, even in our workplaces, is this, that Christians at work and at school should be the hardest working people, that, that all over Muskoka, that, that employers should be like, man, I don't know if I'm totally into all that Jesus stuff, all the stuff you talk about, that, that harvest church you go to, but man, I would hire all of you because of how hardworking you are. You don't cut corners, you're honest, you have a joy at work that's just weird, and I want you in my job place. As a Christian, why are you doing this? Because you're working for Jesus. You're not working for the applause of people, but because God's placed you where you are. And the passage goes on. It says, knowing that what, whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether as a bondservant or free, that, that God will reward. He's the one who rewards. And it may not be in this lifetime. You get that reward, but listen, God's at work, and he's at work in your work. And if, if in, in the things that you think might be mundane, maybe God's got a whole other plan going on. You have no idea what your boss might be wrestling with. You might not like your boss. You might think, yeah, but my boss is crooked. He's dishonest. He's evil. You don't know what's going on in his life. You don't know what, what maybe your boss might even be praying for. Maybe your boss is praying, God, if you're really there, why don't you show yourself to me? And God's like, hey, this is for you, Christian. You're the answer to that prayer. And you show up at work, and everyone else is having a crappy attitude, and you don't. And your boss or, or the student, your teacher is like, man, what is different about you? One of my closest friends, um, 
was working for a company as a tech guy, and he'd worked his way up pretty high in the company, and um, a hard worker, great attitude, and his boss was like, hey, Ray, I want to promote you again. And it's like, this promotion will bring you a ton more cash. You will have to work a lot more evenings and a ton more weekends. What do you think? And Ray said to him, he said, listen, I'll, I'll give you my best, but I can't take that off, right? I love my family, and I love my church, and I serve at my church. And, and listen, I, I'm going to turn down the promotion um, if, if I have to miss weekends and evenings so much. And his boss couldn't figure him out. He's like, wait a minute. Ray leaves that meeting, and he continues to work as hard as ever. And he's like, wait, you work harder than my other employees. You have a joy about you that I, that I can't figure out. And now he's blown away. He goes, you're not even motivated by a paycheck. Eventually, um, he kept calling Ray into his office this boss, the guy who owned the company, he says, I just want you to tell me about life, man. What, what, how do you do life? And days and weeks go by, and Ray started joking. He goes, I, I feel weird because I feel like I'm getting paid to share the gospel now with my boss. I'm doing like Bible studies in his office all day instead of the tech stuff I'm supposed to be doing, but his boss kept calling him in. Now, why did that relationship happen? I think because Ray had already been living out these verses here, planting those gospel seeds the end of the story, one day his boss, this uber-wealthy, powerful man, gets on his knees and gives his life to Christ. Amen. How did it start? Because Ray's serving Jesus first. He's not working for the company. He's, he's working with joy and integrity and sincerity. He stands out. So Christian, who has God placed around you in your workplace? Where has he put you? How, how can your workplace become your mission field? It's not, not by slipping a gospel track in everybody's lunch at work, no, no, but by working differently, living differently. You show up early, you work hard, you give your best, you do it with joy. Why? Because that's what Jesus did for you. So work like you work for Jesus. All right, quickly, bosses. Bosses, what's God call you to? If, if workers are to work like you work for Jesus, bosses are to lead like Jesus leads you. Lead like Jesus leads you. Look what he says here in verse 9. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there's no partiality with him. So, so as a boss, what's he saying? You lead like Jesus leads you. And, and I would ask this question. Did you, you would come to your workplace and be asking, do the people that work for me have a better understanding of who Jesus is, the chief shepherd, by the way I shepherd the people that work for me? Do, do they understand who Jesus is be better because of the kind of boss you are? Would people in our community say, man, I want to work with that person? I, again, I don't buy into all the Jesus stuff that, that, that they talk about, but, but man, they're full of integrity. They take care of their employees. They're amazing to deal with. They sure look a lot like that Jesus they talk about. I mean, it says here, stop your threatening. In other words, quit flexing on people. Try to prove who you are. We, you don't need to do that because you're humble to know whose you are in Christ. It says knowing that he who is both their master and yours in heaven, there's no partiality with him. That means that God placed you in a position of authority, that, that God's the one who put you there. So, so I would say this. If you're a boss here this morning or a teacher or somebody with authority, the key word would be this, humility. Humility, stay humble. 
No, no matter how much authority God gives you, that God put you there, and, and then just like Jesus used his authority to be a blessing, he used his authority to serve, that's the calling for a boss. You lead like Jesus leads you. So here's the point. Here's the, here's the takeaway for all of us. The gospel, listen, the gospel in you changes all of your relationships. Whether you're on the top of the heap or the bottom of the barrel, in Christ, we all have an opportunity to show Jesus, to live out the gospel to a world that's watching. How we do with our relationships, how, how we work with people around us, how we treat our employees, how we treat a teacher or a boss, how we show honor and respect to that waitress or, or that Tim Hortons or McDonald's drive through person who got your order wrong. All of those interactions have gospel impact because we're not here by accident, that God has a purpose and a plan for the life he's given you, for the family he's put you in, for the school you attend, for the workplace he's given you, for the teams you play on. None of those are by accident. In fact, as the worst team comes up this morning, Jesus said it this way in the Sermon on the Mount. Here's where we're gonna wrap it up. Jesus said, you're the light of the world. That's what he calls you as a Christian. You're the light of the world. And he says, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. I like that because cities don't just get haphazardly put places, but, but there are city planners who plan and say, hey, this is where we're going to put this city. This is how we're going to build this. In the same way God's decided, he says, I'm going to place you where you are. I'm going to place you in the family I've got you in. I'm going to place you in the workplace you are. I'm going to place you in the school you are, in the community you are, running the business that you run. And in that way, he says, you're going to be the city that's set on a hill. And he goes on, he goes, people don't light a lamp and then hide it under a basket. They put it on a stand so that it gives light to the whole house. And he says, in the same way, let your light shine before others. So why do we need to be humble? Why do we need to work hard? Why do we need to display the gospel Jesus goes on, that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. So just imagine, just imagine, what if tomorrow, wherever you go, right, whether you're at work tomorrow or, or people are serving you or you're the boss or you're at home or you're in town, whatever, imagine, what if, what if tomorrow was completely different because of what God's done in you today? I mean, just imagine if, if, if our church, if, if everyone who calls Harvest home, and there's hundreds of us, well, imagine if all of us, if, 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 listen, we're not trying to take back our town with some mass media campaign or some sort of crusade, but what if every single person who says, Jesus has changed me, went out into the world and lived differently, lit our lights before others. Can you imagine what this would do in Huntsville, what this would do in Muskoka? Now, I, honestly, I believe it would change the trajectory of our entire town, not because we have some kind of take the city campaign kind of deal, but because the people that have, of, of us who have already been taken by Jesus, we acted like that in our homes, in our workplaces, at our schools. I believe there would be revival. Why? Because Paul sows the seeds of that same gospel in a culture so dark and it's completely transformed. Now, I believe we can do it. Why? Because I believe that God's given us everything we need to do wherever he's called us to do it. Amen? All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus, I, um, 
Jesus, I thank you that you honored and submitted to the Father by giving your life for us. By going to the cross. You, you leveraged your power and your influence to bring us new life. You were so humbled even to death on a cross. And you had this one purpose to make a way for sinners like us to be able to know you. And so I, I pray even this morning, man, God, I pray for every man and woman and student in this room, regardless of, of their environment, whether, whether they're the boss of a staff or they're in an entry-level position, that all of us would be different even tomorrow because of what you're doing in us today. Thank you, God, that you could transform our entire town, not from the outside in, but just because of those of us who love Jesus. When we start acting, living like Jesus' people. God, I pray that our, our light would shine so brightly that people all around us, God, they would see the humility, they would see the influence, they would see the honor, they would see the care, they would see the integrity, and God, God, you would get the glory. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me as we respond in worship? And listen, if, if you need to get on your knees this morning because God's doing something, man, I just pray that God would continue to work as we sing. We need Jesus to do this. And so let's respond. Let's respond with hearts of worship. Let's respond with hearts that are seeking Jesus to do this work. Amen. Amen. Let's sing.